Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 441 of the podcast and it's Friday 19th of July 2019 as I record this and yes, I'm back from laser eye surgery, clearly fine. (laughs) I'll talk about that a bit more in the personal update segment. In this episode, I talk to Jason Brick about flash fiction and making a living as a writer. And really, I like this interview because we talk about fun, but also about money. So writing for pleasure, because let's face it, flash fiction is really about pleasurable and fun writing. And also then uh, we talk about freelance writing and making money. And Jason comes from a martial arts background, which definitely comes across in his discipline. And he has some great productivity tips and also tips for pitching freelance work. Uh, I always enjoy talking to people who are happy to talk about money, about, um, you know, writing, being a living and not just uh, for fun and a hobby. And there's nothing wrong with either. And so that's what I enjoyed uh, talking to Jason about. And yes, I hope you enjoy that coming up. In publishing and book marketing news. Well, there's been a few things, but I wanted to start with Publishing Perspectives, who report on the Audio Publishers Association survey. And of course, I'm passionate about audio. You know that. And this is great because they report seven years of double digit revenue growth for audio. And uh, as we've talked about before, we really are in a renaissance of audio. What is interesting is they report 91% of audio sales are now digital. So that to me really spells the end of CDs. My mum is one of those people who still has CDs um, and DVDs. She watches videos on DVDs. She's only just picked up streaming TV uh, in the last sort of six months. And when my mum picks up something, I mean, she really doesn't like technology. So, uh, you know, for her to pick up streaming TV is interesting. Uh, So I'm going to try and get her on audio uh, downloads at some point. (laughs) But anyone, 91% digital. The other reason I mentioned that is I bought a book. I'm not going to tell you the book um, because I disagreed with a lot of it, but it's got a very traditional publishing slant. But they have a whole chapter on making CDs for your audiobook. And to me, this report really clearly indicates there's no point. 91%. Of course, this is US, but the US is as ever leading the market. Uh, also, 50% of Americans aged 12 and older have listened to an audiobook, up from 44%. So, a growing number of people are listening. 56% of audiobook listeners say they are making new time to listen to audiobooks. And that is amazing. I think this is one of the most key points in this survey, because I'm definitely one of those too. So 56% say they're making time to listen. And that is not happening in other reading segments. Um, You know, I still have a slot of time for reading uh, fiction, which is before bed. I pretty much read fiction in bed every night. Um, But uh, during the day, I will often be reading uh, nonfiction with my ears. (laughs) 74% of audiobook consumers listen in their car, 
up from 69% in 2018. And the home is the second most popularly cited spot at 68%. So that 74% in the car is presumably commuting time or traveling to something, to family or whatever. And I mostly listen when I'm walking, but that's because I don't have a car and mainly walk places or get the train or whatever. So I, I listen during those traveling moments, but it's not generally in a car. And also smart speakers provide growth opportunities as penetration amongst audiobook consumers is nearing twice the US average. 42% of audiobook listeners age 18 and older, own a smart speaker. And again, so in our household, we have um, an Alexa, uh, we have a couple of different Alexa devices. Um, Sorry if I've just woken yours. Uh, I have an Echo Dot, the little one, and then we have an Echo Show uh, as well, which my husband has. And we also have a uh, Apple HomePod. um, And we also have Google Assistant on our phones. So we're really you trying to actually actively trying to use voice more because it's very interesting what you discover when you start using voice and you realize you, you have to use the technology in order to learn how to use it. And as I've mentioned, we're going to be building Alexa skills and some other things. And I obviously want to optimize for voice search. So really trying to learn all these new technologies, you have to use them. And then finally, podcasts, more than fifth, more than half, 55% of audiobook listeners uh, have also listened to a podcast in the last month. So uh, you guys, you are listeners of a podcast and you're more likely to also listen to audiobooks. And this is why I tell people, um, and of course I'm preparing my course on audio for authors and I was doing uh, how to market an audiobook yesterday and really one of the things to me is use audio. So if you want to market a book in any nonfiction, particularly, but also fiction, get on a podcast and you're more likely to sell audiobook versions of your books if you are on a podcast because people already have a phone, they're already listening and they probably can just download your book as audio. In other publishing news, Publish Drive announces Abacus, which enables co-author royalty splitting for uh, calculations, even if you don't publish through Publish Drive. So you just import your uh, KDP report and they're going to introduce other um, reports at some point and it will calculate what you owe for co-author reporting. Now, this can be super useful if you're doing anthologies, if you're doing uh, other things that involve co-writing, I have a number of co-written books. Um, They're all 50-50 split. But to be honest, right now, my biggest issue is uh, things like Ingram, which they're going hopefully to bring in at some point. But this is the beta initial release, which is free uh, until the middle of August 2019. And then there will be a price per title per month, very small price, but it will depend on how many co-author books you do. Um, But basically says any additional costs can be added to the reports to allowing authors to calculate their entire income and and expenditures for all formats. So I would suggest... um, if you are doing collaborative projects, and this, this is a big deal, I know I do it manually every couple of months, I calculate all these things, and it is a pain. So if you are um, in doing collaboration, if you're doing shared universes, if you're a small press publishing other people, this is definitely something to have a look at. You can find it at 
publishdrive.com forward slash abacus. And I have had a go and definitely really an interesting tool. What I love about Publish Drive is they are trying to add more and more tools that we will find useful um, over time so that you can have get on with writing and all the things you love as opposed to things like trying to work out payment splitting. Also, we have so much publishing news, mainly because I was out last week, I guess, but uh, the academic publisher Pearson is shifting away from print textbooks and into a digital model, as reported in The Guardian and also a lot of other media. They are shifting towards a Netflix-style subscription-based model uh, where the material is rented, not owned, a similar shift that has taken place in music and TV. And uh, the company will focus on students subscribing and students who want a physical copy can still rent one. But basically, uh, interestingly, they say, in the Guardian article, the company finds itself having to make products that appeal to students who were born in this millennium and are used to using apps produced to a high standard rather than online material made as an afterthought to accompany print editions. It will also be investing in services that collect and mark coursework. Uh, it notes, Pearson used to be a sprawling conglomerate that owned a variety of companies from the Financial Times uh, to Alton Towers, which is a theme park here in the UK. However, in recent years, it has disposed of its stakes in many businesses in order to focus on its core business of producing educational material. I think this is interesting, mainly because of how Pearson is really shifting its business model. And I talked about that in the AI episode a few weeks ago, how you cannot lament the past. I've heard some indies who've been around for a while say, oh, it used to be like this um, and are upset that it's not like that anymore. But in changing times, you have to change your business model. You cannot just hang on. Like uh, Kodak is always used as a good example or Blockbuster uh, or Borders who just did not change their business models and thus disappeared. And I applaud Pearson really because to be fair I mean I'm in a constant learning mode um I constantly like <laughs> I'll talk about this in a minute but during my laser recovery I listened to I sort of binge listened to AI audiobooks so about set six or seven of them one novel but mostly binge listened to uh, audiobooks and I had my uh, dictation machine next to me and I was making notes with my voice because I just love learning and I feel like for students now there are so many choices. So again, in our company with me and my husband, we're learning a lot about Alexa skills and we're learning. Um, I've been doing AI for everyone on Coursera with Andrew Ng. I've been doing, um, so Coursera is amazing. A lot of that, you can do it for free. There's um, a lot of podcasts now from Stanford and MIT and you can do all kinds of learning that do not involve a textbook. <laughs> And in fact, I i mean, I read nonfiction, but the idea of a textbook that has not been updated up to the minute information. I mean, imagine if you're studying biology at the moment. I mean, there's so many things that are changing with biotech and that we're learning. So I can absolutely see why Pearson have to do this. I also think they will probably need to get involved in much of the AI transformation that's going on in education. So respect to them for changing their model and not just sticking with the old ways. And uh, it's a good message for us. So change with the times or risk uh, things moving on without you. <laughs> 
In the futurist segment, I couldn't resist this. And if you've seen the news, I I bet you knew I was going to do this, which is Elon Musk uh, reveals Neuralink, which is basically a brain machine interface startup. And they did a... um, presentation this week, a kind of online webinar, which is on YouTube, you can always watch it, uh, about a wireless implanted device that theoretically can read your mind, can enable things like movement um, of, uh, you know, prosthetics, for example, or I mean, it really has so much application. If you are in the UK and you've seen the BBC's Years and Years, or if you can get that on wherever you are in the world, it's called Years and Years. Um, They have a character on that. It's about sort of 10 years in the future and thinking about what might happen. And one of the characters is implanted this way. And uh, things start by going pretty bad. But then as things move on, obviously, it becomes quite normal to have implants. And this, this was a really, interesting thing to think about obviously there's that ick factor of what you're going to implant things in my brain you'd think we're a way off this right but um they're saying they will have the first human testing in 2020 which is kind of crazy uh and Elon Musk talked about it being useful for people with you know needing deep brain stimulation which is not a new thing but this could enable it to happen more regularly if you have um, mental health particular issues. But then he talks about um, a monkey using con- controlling a computer with its brain. So this is where, for writers, bringing it back to writers, at the moment, um, and I read a comment on the FT version of this article that said, oh, for typing, you could just think with your mind that your hands were typing. And it was such an interesting comment because, of course, that's not the point. You don't think about your hands typing if you want to write. All you do is think the words. So if you're dictating, and this is why where dictation may well be the crossover technology, if you are used to using your voice to write, then you will be used to more likely using your brain to write. Um, now, the main application of this is, and kind of saging into my personal update here, this is an application for people who perhaps are um, quadriplegic or um, severely disabled. For example, in the Sleepwalkers podcast, which uh, we have, um, which I've recommended before, which you should definitely listen to. If you have not listened to Sleepwalkers, go get it. Um, But they talk about DARPA's brain-controlled prosthetic arm. And uh, basically, it costs about 100 million right now. And there is, I think, only one or two being actually used. But people, you know, veterans um, have had implants where they can control their prosthetics with brain impulse as opposed to the nerve impulse, which has become more common. But this is why I'm excited because for the few days that I was out of action recovering from the eye surgery, I felt very, I felt disconnected. I felt, even though I was listening to audiobooks and podcasts, the way I create in the world, the way I am seen, the way I can help you, Everything is enabled by technology. And when I was kind of feeling helpless for not that long, it really wasn't that long, I thought, as soon as I heard about this Neuralink, I thought, I know why I would want that. I don't need that now because I have my hands, I have my eyes, I can interact with the world using what I have. But 
for people who are in an accident or are physically or mentally um you know, need help in any way, this could be amazing. And I definitely already consider myself augmented in that I, my phone is never far from my hand. I am almost, you know, I'm on the internet every day. And it, for me, it's not so much about social media, like I'm barely on social media anymore. It's about learning. It's about creating. Yeah, to me, those are two modes. I'm, cre- I'm learning or I'm creating. That's basically how I spend my time. And that's what I love to do. Um, learning things, creating things is my life. And I, I just, I love it. And thank you to all of you for helping me live this life and sharing with you guys. And when I wasn't able to, I felt, yeah, I really, I could feel, I could feel that that was a helpless situation that I wanted to change and I was desperate to get back. <laughs> so yeah, really interesting. That's the kind of futurist stuff. Moving into my personal update. Um, so the laser surgery, if you're interested, it was um, LASEC, the EK, and it was TESA, T-E-S-A. I won't get too gory. It's not gory. That's the point. I, it was a no-touch procedure. It was actually incredible. And in fact, this is another almost futurist thing, but not futurist because I just had it, which was uh, no touch. The only thing that was done was a laser. And I just basically I looked into a green light and uh, they put some drops in. I looked into a green light for 38 seconds on one eye and like 41 seconds on my other eye. I was in and out of the room within five, seven minutes. I mean, it was so fast and painless, uh, you know, painless procedure, very, very quick. And then of course I got home and then your eyes obviously then need to heal. Um, They put these little contact lenses in and it was, I did have pain for about 40 hours. So, you know, almost two days, which they said is, was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. I had drops and things to help me and I'm on day, so it's the Friday and I had it on the Thursday a week ago. So day eight, day seven, day eight, and I can walk down the street and I can see stuff and I'm standing here right now with no contact lenses in, which is kind of miraculous. It does feel miraculous. It's one of those things that feels like a miracle. It really does. And it's so funny because I was talking to a friend of mine about why I had it. And I can't remember if I told you guys this, but the main reason I had it, because I've worn contact lenses for 20 plus years and glasses for 30 years. And, uh, the main reason I wanted this is because I basically need bifocals at this point. I, I can't read close and I can't see far or I couldn't see far. So by fixing far, now I just have to wear reading glasses sometimes for very small print. Uh, but right now I'm reading some of these notes and I, I don't have to wear glasses or anything. But this is a this was a, a life fix for something that I, I needed. Things changed. I was fine with contact lenses, but this was n- necessary. But then I also I also said to my friend, oh, and you know, AI, AI apocalypse or zombie apocalypse or anything that might happen in the world where, you know, if you're watching <laughs> a movie like zombie movie or Walking Dead or something and someone's wearing their glasses and they fall and they fall off and then they get eaten. <laughs> So for me, fixing my eyes was partly because it was about time, but also zombie apocalypse. I read too much zombie fiction, clearly. (laughs) So apart from recovery and all the audiobooks I was listening to, of which I have been listening to tons about digital transformation and AI revolution and 
just loving all of that. But also, I have been planning my podcast movement agenda. And what is interesting is I've been going to writing conferences now for, yeah, like 10 years. I've been going to writing conferences and self-publishing things. And you know, when you, obviously, I will never stop learning about writing craft, but I know quite a lot about the publishing side and the business side of being a writer these days. I I, I know what I'm talking about. And I have quite a lot of um, experience with the craft now, you know, I've written 17 novels. And uh, so for me, going to writers conferences, I don't often find sessions where I'm like, wow, that was amazing. And I looking at the podcast movement agenda, which is it's in August, and I will be in Orlando. Um, If you've seen the Book of Mormon, you'll know what's in my brain. (laughs) But um, the the agenda is incredible. I actually have multiple back-to-back sessions that I want to go to and have bought the virtual ticket as well so I can listen to the recordings because uh, I have been podcasting for 10 years and I have never been to a podcast conference. And of course, the industry now is so revolutionized and there's lots and lots of things, uh, you know, arriving to help podcasters and new tools and things. So I'm very excited about going. And of course, because because I have books and travel, which only has 13 episodes so far, I could be I could consider myself a new podcaster in other ways. So uh, I'll be really interested in that. And of course, I will probably do a show on what I've learned uh, about that. Also, talking of audio, Successful Self-Publishing is now out on Audible and coming soon on Kobo and Google Play and Scribd and all the other Find Your Way Voices Direct and all of authors direct, sorry, and uh, iTunes and all all the rest. Um, if the ebook is free, so if you get the ebook on uh, Amazon, you will get the audio book for super cheap. And uh, yes, so anyway, successful self publishing out now on audio, and I recorded it here in my audio booth, so you can hear the incredible quality of my sound booth, which I'll be blogging about soon with all the links to all the stuff. So today's show is sponsored by Readsy, the curated marketplace for professionals to help you on your author journey. If you need a book cover designer, an editor or a proofreader, or maybe you need help with book marketing or publicity or your author website, check out thecreativepen.com forward slash Readsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y, and you will find freelancers who can help you. Now, I recommend Readsy because they vet everyone on the marketplace to ensure you get a high level of service. So you know that you're going to get uh, a great freelancer helping you. They also have lots of free training courses on loads of stuff from the writing craft, like dialogue and characters through publishing topics, on how to get an agent, how to pitch uh, um, an agent, self-publishing tips like selling on Kobo, and as well as loads of stuff on book marketing, international pricing, and much more. So check out the marketplace or the free courses at thecreativepen.com forward slash readsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Thanks especially to new patrons, Rian Bowley, Diane Scott, AK Pittman, 
L.E. Wilson and Mark Munro. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. Like the tweets and emails, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years now. I can't believe we've been doing this so long. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, you will get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which means you can ask me a question and I will answer it on the extra audio I do every month. You also get access to the backlist, which is, yep, almost three years worth of audio. So if you need to fill up your audio for the summer, uh, come join us and you can support the show just a couple of dollars a month. So it's super, super bonus. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get on with the interview. Today, I'm here with Jason Brick. Hi, Jason. Hello, Joanna. It's great to have you on the show. Just a little introduction. Jason is a professional writer, a martial artist, a travel addict like me, and a professional speaker whose work has been published across multiple genres and formats. He has over 3,000 published articles and short stories, has ghostwritten more than 20 books, as well as writing novels and nonfiction under his own name. Plus, he has edited and crowdfunded a number of anthologies. You are a busy man, Jason. Yes, ma'am. Um, I love to eat and sleep indoors, but I don't ever want to get a real job. So that requires that I write as much as I can, as often as I can to fund the lifestyle my kids like to live. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. <laughs> but just tell us a bit more about mm-hmm. you and how you got into writing. Well, it's a funny story. Um, I, one of my first memories is pretending to write stories in a notebook before I knew how to write. I was scribbling lines and pretending that they meant something. Uh, and I got a lot of feedback, even as a elementary school student, about my ability to write. And then as a high schooler, my two best friends each had a parent who was a professional writer. Mm-hmm. One was a journalist, the other was a technical writer. And in college, I got a lot of feedback from my professors and a lot of support about my skill at writing. So, of course, I went into an entirely different field for the first 10 years of my adult life. Uh, that was when I ran a martial arts studio. Mm-hmm. And then when my first child became an elementary school student working in evenings and weekends job just wasn't cutting it. And so I sold my karate studio. And at that time, I had developed a large enough portfolio through writing ad copy for my school. I had a column in the local paper about safety and parenting and things like that, that I was able to turn that portfolio into a full-time freelance career in about six months. Wow. So I've got to ask you, this wasn't a question Mm. I primed you for, but I've got (laughs) to ask you about productivity because Mm. you, I mean, you clearly write fast um, and a lot. Uh, So what are your productivity tips? Uh, One of the best tricks ever that I learned, I learned this about five years ago and I've been using it every day, is that when you're done writing for the day, resist the urge to complete the sentence. Because usually that first half hour we sit down to write, we're staring at the blank screen, bleeding from our foreheads, trying to wonder what we're going to write next. But if you've got an incomplete sentence on the page, you know exactly what to write, and you're in the flow, and you're in your rhythm immediately. And besides that is just knowing the rhythms of how you work and not fighting them, but rather designing a day that can match. Mm. You know, I'm... uh, As my writing career kind of indicates, I have a lot of interests. I'm easily bored. So I work in half-hour sprints and then take a 15-minute break to clean part of the house or go do a short workout, and then I come back and do another half-hour sprint. 
where some people are better have a better time just blocking off four hours and writing in a, at a pass, and neither is better or worse. The only mistake is trying to do something that doesn't work for you. Mm, no, that's, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that is a really good tip. I'm definitely someone who needs a bit longer um, than the sort mm. of thirty minutes. I like I like to have a bit longer. Mm. But no, that's really interesting. So we we uh, mm-hmm. are here to talk about flash fiction, which is how yes. we. But although you're you've got so many things we could talk about, <laughs> but we're going to start with flash fiction. Um, mm. I have only kind of recently discovered flash fiction and have been to some uh, evenings where people have read them. So I want mm. us to start with. Um, what is flash fiction and why is it not poetry or a short story? <laughs> so it is a short story. It's just an extremely short story. The difference between flash fiction and a short story is like the difference between a novella and a novel. It's simply word length. Uh, various people will argue about what that limit is. I tend to, the anthologies that I've published of flash fiction, I, call, I put the limit at 1,000 words. But you'll hear some people saying 500 words, and some people start using terms like microfiction, things like that. But really, the conceptual difference is that when you're dealing with flash fiction, you can't tell the whole story. You're implying most of the story in old school Lovecraft, not Lovecraftian faction, but uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name right now, the uh, Hitchcock, in old Hitchcock fashion where you leave most of the details to the imagination of the reader and provide just enough rope for them to hang their imaginations on. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the ones I've read are probably more like mm. a couple of hundred words rather than than a thousand words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I guess my feeling with it is mm-hmm. that it seems less serious. Like you can't, can you, you know, is it is it a more fun way to be creative than kind of taking on a big book-sized project, for example? Oh, it really depends. I mean, my favorite flash fiction tends to be funny, but there can be really horrific flash fiction. I've seen very effective horror in the genre, very stirring stories about human psychology, about human relationships. And of course, there's the probably the most famous flash fiction story of all time by Hemingway, which is for sale, baby shoes, never used, is just heart-wrenching. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was... Um apocryphal like maybe someone else wrote it or it's become known yeah. as his but I don't know it might have been it might have been <laughs> who knows the truth of that um okay so I mm-hmm. I have looked at Flash um because I really mm-hmm. like it I think it's brilliant it works really well with things like Instagram and the kind of the modern ways of marketing mm-hmm. but it seems super hard to me I mean I write very big um books they have sort of big scope lots of global mm-hmm. conspiracies so tell me like, what are your tips for writing flash fiction? How do we go from writing these longer pieces to writing shorter? Well, what was it Oscar Wilde said about, I'm writing you a long letter because I don't have time to write a short one. Mm. And, you know, getting those stories out there. And again, I think it depends on some, on people's different processes. Some people write very short naturally and then expand as the drafts go on. Other people write very long drafts and then narrow them down. And again, the only mistake is doing what's not natural for you. Uh, In terms of monetizing flash fiction, uh, don't even try to make a living just writing flash fiction unless you're already famous. It's the market just does not exist. Mm. Yeah. We'll come back to markets, but Mm -hmm. just going back to writing short. So I think it has to come down to the size of the idea, right? Because you can't, you can't actually, I can't write a whole, 
uh, a whole story, as you said. But what are mm. what is your thoughts around choosing the thing to write about? Is it a vignette that we pick from the mm. world, or you know, how do you actually choose mm. the right topic? Well, so for me personally, and I can't speak to other people's processes, but usually a flash fiction story that I write comes from a larger idea that's rattling around in my head and then focusing on one individual's experience of that idea. Like almost none of us have the, an experience that is the whole story, whether you're talking about your relationships, whether you're talking about your job, whether you're talking about your understanding of science or current events. And so excellent flash fiction, I think, takes one person's narrow experience of a larger topic and then implies the things that they don't know, the things that aren't on screen in a way that's effective and compelling. Yeah. And it's that topic that I find so hard. So Mm -hmm. what what do you think Mm -hmm. that people, you know, are there specific writing prompts for people writing Flash? Or um, I've seen some Twitter hashtags, for Mm -hmm. example. I'm sure they exist, but I haven't really interacted with them at all. Uh, Flash fiction is just another kind of story that I write. And so my flash fiction things come from being done with a story and realizing it's in the flash range rather than being a full short story or a novella. Oh, that's interesting. So you yeah. actually decide, you write it first, and mm. and then the length will determine what you do with it. Yes. Oh, okay. Right. So I, I've mm. never done that. So <laughs> I, I kind of think of a, you know, I can only, at this time, I kind of only think of things on a much bigger level. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to adjust my my mindset to, to doing it like that. Mm. So I guess coming back to the market for yeah. it. So tell us about, about the anthologies you do. Why do anthologies of Flash? So the real question for me is why kickstart anthologies of Flash? One of the issues with Flash anthologies from a traditional publishing standpoint is you have to have so many authors to fill a book that the royalties are tiny and it just doesn't work out. That's why you don't see a lot of anthologies of Flash fiction from big five or even independent publishers. On the other hand, if you kickstart that, my flash fictions are all anthologies of 100 authors. Mm -hmm. I have 100 people with a vested interest in the success of the campaign. And so it's very naturally suited for that particular style. And so that's why anthologies of flash fiction work for me personally. Right. So, um, but Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you you find Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. authors? So what I do is a combination of, I have a fairly extensive mailing list of aspiring authors and professional authors from some of the services I do for people who want to succeed in the writing industry, as well as I use social media outreach. I used to use Craigslist, but they recently started charging for their ads. So the first anthology, I went to 20 different cities. Now when I put out an anthology, I only advertise in New York, Chicago, and LA. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So what? Are, mm-hmm. So the other thing, I guess, so even if you have 100 mm-hmm. people putting money in together, mm-hmm. um, so I mm-hmm. guess everyone is going to support it if they are in the book. Um, mm-hmm. But what are your other tips for a successful Kickstarter? Because it seems to me that, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of them do get mm-hmm. funded, but many don't. Lazy me. That's a, that is a topic for an entire, you could teach courses on this. And in fact, I would recommend Russell Nolte's course on this specifically. Uh, He, using just some of the advice in that, literally quadrupled the amount of backing I got on my third anthology as compared to the first two. But the biggest thing is to start early. 
you know, your first day of work on getting gathering backers for an anthology for a Kickstarter project is not the first day the anthology is open. You need probably 90 days of lead time for getting people ready for it, for setting up podcast interviews, for setting up blog tours, for setting your schedule. And then while you're doing it, this is the equivalent of a part-time or even full-time job if you can manage it. Being online every day, harrying, harassing, and chivying people to make the donations they promised they would, doing various shenanigans online to get, get attention, reaching out to press, things like that. I think the biggest mistake people make with Kickstarter is having an if you build it, they will come approach, which just simply isn't true. Mm. So, so all those people, so you have a hundred mm. people involved. I, I mm-hmm. st- struggle with anthologies. I mean, I see mm-hmm. from one perspective that if, you, and I've had short stories in anthologies, mm-hmm. so, you know, I get it from a sort of marketing perspective, but in terms mm-hmm. of making money, like you said, it's kind of a part-time job. So how does that mm-hmm. become part? I mean, everyone listening wants to have, you know, mm-hmm. make some money from their writing. So how does it become a viable prospect financially? So I don't know of anybody who makes a full-time living writing short fiction these days. It's important to remember that the average rate for short fiction per word hasn't changed since the pulp magazines of the 1920s. Robert Howard and Dashiell Hammett and those guys were making a penny or two a word. And most of the short fiction markets today are paying about a penny or two, maybe three cents a word. Some of the markets are up into five and six cents. But making a living from short fiction is probably impossible unless you can write like 3,000 words an hour. Mm. That's short fiction to support a longer fiction habit. You can use short, if you want to write short fiction in collections and self-publish it, I think that is a market that is growing where you could make a living on that using Amazon and Kobo and things like that. But the idea of writing for anthologies and magazines and making a full-time living, I don't think that model is viable anymore. Yeah. Okay. So then mm-hmm. if then let's talk about the market for people who read mm-hmm. flash fiction. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, what are the people who read flash fiction writers of flash mm-hmm. fiction? Or how do you actually <laughs> sell copies of those anthologies? What are some of the ways you do book marketing for those anthologies? So I use a lot of social media marketing. I work with a couple of magazines and online sites that specialize in flash fiction. And because flash fiction is a kind of niche market, the folks are pretty close and open about sharing it. We're all, we're all word nerds. And so we're, you know, we're part of the same tribe. So for example, Flash Fiction Aficionado is a magazine on, in Washington, D.C. that actually has print copies that publishes flash fiction once a month. You just reach out to as many websites and magazines as you can. Uh, you mentioned Twitter, just popping up a flash fiction, a short flash fiction story on Twitter is not a bad idea. I've seen some of that also on Reddit, places like that. And you just keep, you know, keep throwing the spaghetti against the wall. And then when something sticks, definitely compound that. You know, as soon as you get positive attention from one place, give them attention back like any other kind of social media. Engagement. Mm. So you really are marketing to people mm. who are already buying anthologies. Yes, absolutely. You know, there's mm. no better customer than the customer who's already bought something very similar to what you have. 
Yeah, and I kind of wonder because I I don't read many anthologies. I I much prefer kind of full but full a full uh-huh. story, a full length story and and I know everyone has their different way of mm-hmm. writing, which is really interesting. And I feel the same about box sets. I feel like there mm-hmm. are readers who buy box sets. Um I I have box sets, but I don't mm-hmm. actually I don't buy box sets, mm-hmm. you know. So I feel like maybe there are these different categories of readers. Do you get that sense or what do you, what are your feelings so, around very readers? Much. I think that's very true that most readers read what they like to read. And the more of that, you know, people have a favorite author and they'll buy every single thing they can from that author. And often they'll be a little suspicious of an author who's very similar, even until they finally read that book because it was the only book available to them at that time. And then they become a fan of that author. There's some authors who are like that, very specialized. And then there's other authors who are just very open with their reading or not authors, but readers who are very open with their reading. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to be one of those. I, I read anthologies mostly to meet new authors. You know, I'll find an anthology that has one or two authors whose work I really admire and then find out what else is in there. Yeah, it, it is really yeah. an, an interesting, different thing. So, when, so for example, would mm-hmm. you do Amazon advertising that targets other anthologies in the genre? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, I would think that's a good thing. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. because when I start, first started out um, as a writer, uh, I got stung by one of these mm. pay to be in an anthology mm-hmm. thing where, it, you know, there was one big name and then you had to pay. It was considerable. It was in my first year of writing. And I'm not mm-hmm. certainly not saying that that happens with most anthologies. But how can authors tell the difference between a viable anthology that actually mm. would be good for their career and something that might not be? If they ask for money, don't do it, period. One of my earliest writing mentors was actually one of my martial arts instructors, a guy named Walter John Williams, who was a cyberpunk and science fiction author starting in the 90s. And when I first started going out on submission with stories, the first thing he said to me was, if anybody asks you for money, you should use the other things I taught you on them. <laughs> which which <Yeah>. are? <laughs> um, he taught me how to kill people with my bare hands. Oh, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, right. Very useful uh, in anthologies. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the thing. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of scammers, a lot of people who are using the fact that prospective authors really want to be published mm. as a way of profiting at their expense without giving real value. And although there are a few contests that are legitimate, that have an entry fee. When it comes to anybody who's going to print your words, if they ask for money, that that is a huge red flag. Just walk away. Mm, yeah, and I didn't know that at the time. So yeah. there you go. We all have our, yeah. our beginning days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I want to ask you, um, mm-hmm. on your website, and obviously you do a lot of different things, but you mm-hmm. you describe yourself as a working writer, and I don't make mm-hmm. my living from a single best-selling series uh, I write, make my living by writing a lot of things. So I always love talking about multiple streams of income on this show. Oh, so yes. can you talk about what, what are your different streams of income uh, right now? So uh, about a third of my income comes from uh, corporate blog work. Um, American Express is one of my clients, Healthline.com, things like that. Those are the way I really fund the rest of the lifestyle. Those kind of assignments pay 25, 50 cents a word, even a dollar a word. And once you get in with a client, you'll usually be doing a couple thousand words a month for that individual client. 
So that's about a third of my income. Another third of the income comes from my traditional and self-published book projects of one sort or another. And then the other third, I'm actually a huge nerd and actually write for the tabletop role-playing game industry, which does not pay very much, but is a whole lot of fun. Well, that's really, really very different forms of writing. So let's talk about the corporate mm-hmm. blog world, because this is my under, my understanding of freelance mm-hmm. writing is there are prob- probably 90% of people writing freelance uh, are not making decent money and they are struggling. But you have obviously mm-hmm. targeted specific clients. So mm-hmm. how how do you suggest that people identify the right clients where they can write good mm-hmm. work and get paid decently? Start with the blogs that you're already reading and the magazines you're already reading. The How I got my first paying gigs as a freelance writer was by going to the websites of other martial arts studio owners that I knew and telling them how I could do it better. And from there, turning that portfolio into other small business-related things. And eventually, you know, I was working for American Express's small business community and Intuit's small business community by capitalizing on the knowledge and the contacts I already had from my previous career. Another really good place to start is whatever your hobby is. Walk into the store, and to the right or the left of the cash register, there's a rack of magazines. And go pitch all of those magazines. Hmm. Those magazines are mostly written by hobbyists. And if you can go to one of those editors and be somebody knowledgeable about the hobby who can also write you'll get a lot of repeat work from that magazine. I ended up for three years, I was doing Black Belt Magazine's obituaries because I was one of the few people the editors knew who could actually write on deadline and do decent research. Mm. Uh, The same thing applies to industry magazines. Whatever you're doing for a living right now, there's an industry magazine, there might be a union magazine, there's probably a regional journal. Those places also are written mostly by experts, not writers. So if you can come to them as an expert who can write, that's another really good place to break in. And some of them actually pay surprisingly well. So how much did Mm -hmm. you do for free? Because this is what I feel like maybe you have to work your way Mm -hmm. up, as you say. So how long did you spend sort of doing things for free or for lower rates before you kind of moved into that premium level? Never write for free. Never, ever, 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 ever write for free. At the beginning, not for free could mean writing a menu for a restaurant where you know the owner in exchange for a couple free meals. Writing for barter is okay, but never write for free. The idea that we should write for exposure is a lie foisted upon us by people who don't want to pay for our words. Which makes me laugh uh, because (laughs) I allow guest bloggers on my blog Mm. and Mm. I don't pay for that. They are actually, Mm. people pitch me to be on my blog. So what what are Mm. your feelings about that? So that is a bit of a different thing. Um, I will write a free blog for a friend as a favor. I will write my advertising copy for free. And if your career is at a point where you are writing a blog post for a major publication or somebody who's a bit of a celebrity in the community you're wanting to write for, that can be an exception. But even then, you're not writing for free. You're writing for established exposure in a very specific niche. You know, that's, to me, writing your own uh, publicity as opposed to writing something not associated with your career, really doing your first blog for somebody's website for free because they don't want to pay you. Those are two very different things in my mind. 
Okay, good. I'm glad you said yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in the same way, I guess. Um, so let's talk about pitching a little bit, because mm. I feel like many people, let's say if you're, if you're writing flash fiction, for example, mm. is a creative way of writing. But when you're pitching for work, mm. what are some of your tips for, I mean, I get pitched all the time, um, and some are mm. very clearly good and some are clearly bad. So what are your tips for a good pitch uh, to get paying work? So I have a, and this is something I deliver in many presentations, and I think it might be in my book, Nine Habits of Highly Profitable Writing, which is available on Amazon, plug, plug. But I have what I call the uh, four-paragraph perfect pitch letter, and it's three paragraphs plus one. And the first paragraph is, you're awesome. The second paragraph is, I have this awesome idea. And the third paragraph is, I'm awesome. Mm -hmm. So the sad truth is that nobody cares about you. They care about them and how you can help them. So your first paragraph needs to be telling of the person you're pitching the, about why you like the publication, why you want to be in that publication, what's great about that publication. It also just is polite that if you're going to ask someone to give you money to show you know, you've done a little bit of research. So a paragraph real quick about I like this magazine, I like this website, and I usually will use one sentence describing something I read about in that magazine or website recently that I particularly liked, even if I read it 10 minutes before writing the pitch letter. Because that gets their interest. People are interested in themselves and not interested in you, and that piques their interest. Second paragraph is you just describe the idea. Briefly, shortly, you can use bullet points if you want. And the third one you need to describe very quickly why you are the only person in the world who is appropriate to write this story. Just one, two, three paragraphs. Then you sign off. And then there's the bonus paragraph at the bottom, which has probably made me more money as an idea than anything else I've done, which is just, P.S., if this idea doesn't suit you, but you like my writing, here are a couple other ideas that might be appropriate. Mm. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's good you say mm -hmm. that because uh, I think – uh, the mm. biggest issue, well, there's the, there are issues in each of those levels, actually, mm -hmm. but it's interesting. So you're right. Most people will email me, for example, and pitch for this podcast with, I've written a book. Uh, I want to mm -hmm. come on your podcast. Yeah, great. You know, that's not very useful. So when it comes to ideas, mm -hmm. how do you make sure you craft an idea that is interesting to the person you're pitching? So there's two ways to go about it. And I use them about 50-50. Uh, sometimes you have your idea first, and then you go find publications that might carry that idea. And the other one is you target a publication, and you come up with a cool idea. When you're, the first major national magazine that carried my work was Black Belt Magazine, and I decided I wanted to be in Black Belt. So I read a few issues of Black Belt, looked at their blog, and came up with an idea that was similar to but unique enough to get attention. In that case, I did an article on the non-combative, non-self-defense benefits of martial arts training. Things like cardiovascular endurance. I mean, I'm a middle-aged man in his 40s. What's going to kill me is a heart attack. Self-defense for me is jogging every day, right? And applying that, that was something they hadn't seen but was clearly relevant and interesting to their people. And so they bought it. So that's what you do if you have focus on a publication or a website that you want to be on, look at what they've already published, find the themes, and then brainstorm unique takes on those themes. And then the other way is you brainstorm your ideas and then you just you know hop online, grab your copy of Writer's Digest and find out who's publishing what you, what you want to write. 
Mm. And then when you're pitching that idea, mm-hmm. do you actually pitch uh, a headline that is SEO, um, you know, SEO search engine optimized already, or are you pitching something more nebulous? Again, it depends on the publisher. On the publisher, you can kind of tell often in the submission guidelines which they'd like to see. And my Achilles heel is titles. I'm terrible at them, so I try to avoid that if I can. Yeah, I, I mean, I when people pitch me, I do like mm-hmm. with a a blog post. I do like to see some kind of idea of the headline, um, mm-hmm. and and then the other thing you were saying about um, mm-hmm. what's great about you, the person pitching. I mean, I've had pitches which are brilliant, which are saying nice things about me. They come up with a nice idea, and then mm-hmm. they're from a credit card company. And I'm yeah. like, well, I'm, I'm, I don't want you to write for my blog. I only let authors and writers and people who are like me, you mm. know, small business people on, on the blog. So that's really interesting too. So another tip I, I think is important is saying mm. only pitch people you're, you actually care about. Like you are a, you know, a martial arts guy. So you weren't just, mm. you know, BSing about that article, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm actually married to a literary agent. Uh, one of the things that keeps me humble is that I'm married to a literary agent, but currently unrepresented. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she gets more than 100 emails a week in her slush pile. And mm-hmm. easily 50% of them are for genres she doesn't represent. And yeah. it's, you know, having the common courtesy of only pitching people who are appropriate for your idea and for your interests. That just seems to me, like I said, it's common courtesy. And it seems to be lacking. Oh, uh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And then how do you deal with uh, the inevitable rejection? So you've spent your time, you've done your mm. pitches. Um, what do you do with, with the no's? I ignore them and move on. If I have any information in there that can help me be more successful with the next pitch, I can, I'll put it in my database. I use an Excel spreadsheet. But one. My superpower for my writing career is the fact that I came to it from the martial arts industry. Feedback that doesn't involve a bloody nose, I consider a win. I'm pretty, you know, it's, I'm just told no over and over again. In fact, there's an interesting story related to that. I was speaking at a conference in Southern Oregon, and I was sitting with the other presenters there. There were about 12 of us for a conference of about 300 people. And there were three men, nine women, and all three of the men had wrestled in high school and college. And we found that interesting and we reached out and it turned out almost everybody who was speaking at that conference was either an athlete in high school or a musician or in drama. And so the people who were successful in the field had, from their teens on, had experiences where they were told, no, that's wrong, try it again, in ways that weren't emotionally fraught. Whereas if your experience is only in academics, you get a 99% on your math test. Number one, you feel kind of bad about that 1%. And number two, you can never go back and fix it. Mm. And that paradigm of just being used to being told, no, you did it wrong, do it right. And just internalizing that as quickly as you can and getting used to it, I think is very helpful and powerful in the life of a writer. Which is why when people ask me what's the biggest piece of advice I would give for beginning a career as writing is submit early, submit often, get used to it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so funny because you say that and I'm Mm. the opposite. Um, Mm -hmm. I wonder, I mean, I, 
I love the indie way because I don't need to ask anyone's permission and I don't need mm. to get rejected. No, I mean, the, only, nice. the people who reject me are the people who mm. don't, who try my stuff and don't like it or who try this yeah. podcast and don't like it. And that's fine because I don't feel mm. their rejection. They can just turn off, you know, some yeah. people will have just stopped listening to us. That's fine. That's mm-hmm. their choice, but I don't feel that. So that's really interesting. And, um, you know, it makes me think maybe why I, never pitch i mean i love having a, a podcast mm-hmm. because people pitch me i don't have to pitch anymore. there you are <laughs> <laughs> but i need to learn that which is good so yeah. i wanted to so you've mentioned speaking mm-hmm. a couple of times yeah. how how does speaking fit into your business your multiple streams of income so i speak at writers conferences uh both for the paycheck from the conference itself and as a way of bringing people into my iron writers community and my write like hell community which are ways that i do some coaching for writers and get people who are interested in writing, interested in, and knowledgeable about my work. And I also go to business conferences, uh, talk to them about writing. One of the things I really recommend for anybody who writes, especially nonfiction, but fiction as well, is you got to go to a writing conference once a year just to hang out with your tribe. But the trouble with writing conferences in terms of your career is you're in a room full of writers. But if, for example, you write about uh, coding in Ruby and you go to a convention about Ruby, You're the only writer in that room, surrounded by people, some of whom need a writer. Mm. So going to a business conference about whatever it is you write about can be a really great source of exactly the kind of clients you need. Yeah. And presumably maybe find some people Mm. to pitch later on who might remember you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I mean, if you do your job right, you'll walk out with a job offer. So... Yeah, I think that's mm. that's fantastic, as mm. you say. So, and then I wanted to come back on your role-playing game mm. writing because <laughs> I yes, think, indeed. yeah, I mean, I think this is so interesting because I can't remember the numbers, but the gaming industry now is, mm. you know, far bigger than Hollywood. It's, it's huge. It is massive. And there's a whole ecosystems of mm. gaming that go on and a lot of yeah. money in that industry. So, mm. Um, if people, you know, were interested in getting into writing for games, and I know writers who write for games, it's fascinating. What are your some some of your tips for getting into that niche? So, to be clear, there's video games, which is a huge multi-billion dollar industry. And then there's tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, which is a much smaller industry and much harder to break into that pays much worse. And unfortunately, I chose that smaller one. Because <laughs> that's, that's what audience. you like. <laughs> Yeah. But breaking into both of those is very much a social game because the number of people who want to write for those industries as compared to the number of slots for writers, it's the ratio is very, very, very large. And so the best thing you can do is go to conferences, go to conventions, stalk people on Twitter, forge some kind of relationship with one editor one director of human resources, one person who can make the decision to pay you, and then just do that assignment extremely well. Because that market is glutted with prospective authors and and editors who know somebody who will get the job done on time, done well, they will use you again and again and again and again and again. Mm. You know, my... My assignments for that in that industry include uh, some self-published books called Random Encounters, which people can find on Amazon, where I just share ideas about the game. But also, 90% of it came from two editors that I happened to write for 
because I heard about a project on a podcast and was so enamored by it, I wanted to write for it. So I hassled the owner of that company until it gave me a chance. And then those two editors kept recommending me to other editors, to other editors, to other editors until my career is at the point it is. But mm. I breaking in cold, I think, would have been very, very, very difficult. Yeah, as ever. I mean, relationships just make mm-hmm. so much difference. Um, and then we, we, there's so much I could ask you about. I do want to ask you about the <laughs> ghost, the ghostwriting, because there's been in the author community some uh, some controversy about mm-hmm. ghostwriting, um, and there, you know, some questions around, uh, mm-hmm. you know. The ghost. I'm sure you know about the copy paste Chris uh, thing in, yeah. in romance, where a, a supposedly her ghostwriters plagiarized or she plagiarized, and the whole thing is uh, very mm. difficult. But I think a lot of people don't understand ghostwriters mm-hmm. mainly because you're ghosts and you're kind of you're not you're not meant to be out there, <laughs> and sort <Yeah>. of <laughs> fessing up to things. But why mm. why make ghostwriting part of your writing uh, portfolio as such when you write your own stuff as well? So there's a couple of reasons. I kind of fell into that. One of my, so your video is broken up, but I'm, can you hear me okay? Yeah, it's all good. Okay, then I'll keep talking. I'm sure your video will come back. Um, I fell into ghostwriting because one of my mentors was a professional ghostwriter and had some overflow. It wasn't something I got into on purpose. Uh, the re- some of the reasons to do ghostwriting is the highest end ghostwriting pays extraordinarily well. Mm. You can charge 50 cents to a dollar a word for an 80,000 word book. Woo. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's not even the folks who are writing for, you know, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or somebody, right? You know, Trump's going to come out there and pay some ghostwriter a ridiculous sum of money. But just <laughs> r- work a day ghostwriting usually is you've got some expert who's too busy coaching, too busy working, wants to be the guy who wrote the book on this thing wants to be the woman who wrote the book on this topic, but just doesn't have the time or the skills to write the book themselves. So they find a professional writer to do that. And because these are people who are highly successful in their careers and see the potential for profit from their book, they will pay you very well to do the thing. And and again, how do you find it's the same question as about the mm-hmm. the 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 other writing. How do you find those high paying clients? So again, for me, it was mostly connections. You know, I was fortunate enough to be mentored by somebody who had an established career as a professional ghostwriter. One of my favorite projects that I'm just finishing up was just from a woman I knew in high school who encountered this person in the course of her job. Mm -hmm. It was actually a really fascinating one. This one didn't pay as well because it wasn't that kind of corporate ghostwriting. It was a C1 quadriplegic who was told he had an hour to live in 1984 Hmm. and is still alive and involved in activism and advocacy for people with disabilities. And he wanted his book out for, to support his speaking career. But again, it's uh, this, the old thing about it's not what you know, it's who, you know, Hmm. especially for ghostwriting, because this is going to be a close relationship and they're going to spend a lot of money. So they're going to want the recommendation is somebody they trust. Do you, uh, in your, the book you've got on making money with writing, do you talk about that, uh, about ghostwriting in there? I don't think so. I wrote that before I really broke into ghostwriting. Mm, maybe time but to I've update got, it. I think so. I've been, that's all my list of things to do. Absolutely. <laughs> Probably a big list like the rest of us. Yeah. 
Um, okay, well, look, this has been so interesting. And uh, tell people where they can find you and your books and everything you do online. Absolutely. Brickcommajason.com is my core website. I'm very active on Facebook as well. My Iron Riders Challenge community is a place where riders get together, talk shop, dare each other to accomplish some degree of productivity on Monday and then start hassling each other on Thursday to see if it got done. Uh, those are the best places to find me. Uh, you can find me in on Amazon.com. Look for Jason Brick. You can find my books on writing, my books on tabletop role-playing games, and a couple of other little things. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much yeah. for your time, Jason. That was great. Well, thank you, Joanna. I appreciate it a lot. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jason today and that it gave you some inspiration for your writing and creative business. And I always love to have people making income streams in different ways on the show. It demonstrates there is no single path to success and we are all different. So I hope you got some ideas. So next week, I'm talking, I have two people on the show, which I don't do very often, but I have Russell Blake, who is a very well-known indie author, has been around a long time. And what's interesting is we're talking about how things have changed. And Russell uh, has not been doing this as long as I have, but he's just been incredibly successful. And he's been super prolific. He's been on the show before, um, I think about five years ago talking about writing fast and um, but what we talk about is how things have changed in self-publishing and how we can adapt for the next phase. Now Russell is on the show alongside Michael Beverly who runs AMS AdWorks who talks about uh, some of his insights into being successful with Amazon advertising. Now It is not a detailed technical podcast episode. It's more about the attitude you need going forwards as things have changed. And I guess that uh, reflects the Pearson discussion, which is you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect to continue. You have to adapt. So look forward to that. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.